any kind of sanctions regime, number one, is an operation for regime change. Sanctions are meant to bleed governments dry, to bleed countries' economies dry, to make them submit to the will of imperialism. And if they don't, then hopefully, as the United States and European powers have said over and over again, hopefully this puts pressure to bear on the government and the people will rise up. This is not something that they hold their tongues about. They want sanctions to produce unrest in the country that they are leveling them against. And so that's usually coupled with something that also exists in Russia, which is a large amount of foreign-sponsored funding for opposition figures. The United States funds opposition groups in Russia, funds so-called so civil society groups in Russia. And let me just give you an idea about how deep this funding goes. So the National Endowment for Democracy makes it really easy. They don't always make it easy to calculate the total amount. So I'm not even going to try here because it's a lot of money and we're not going to add it up. But let's just say that there are millions of dollars circulating for so-called civil society groups, so-called democratic opposition, et cetera, et cetera, the uh, Navalny's of the world, right? These forces are receiving millions of dollars to wage essentially regime change in Russia, to pressure the government to change its particular form and leadership. So I'm going to show you now the National Endowment for Democracy's page for 2021 Russia and just how much money is going into these kind of operations, right? Into these kind of uh, so-called legitimate uh, democratic uh, struggles. So here you have it. I don't know if you can see that. I think I made it a little too big. Let me make it a little smaller for you. So Russia 2021, this was published uh, just last month. The funders, all of the different funders for opposition groups in Russia and so-called opposition movements. So here you have $355,000 by the National Democratic Institute, the NDI. Who was the chair of that? It was Madeleine Albright. So you had the International Republican Institute, the IRI, putting in $900,000 for expanding the reach of democratic actors, right? So over and over and over again, you have the NDI again, $385,000, right? For civic engagement and uh, Russian speaking partners. And so over and over and over again, you have $100,000 here for human rights monitoring. You have another $63,000 there. And this list is very long of sums above $100,000, $200,000 each, $55,000 grants. These are sort of efforts that the NED is funding. And so this tallies upwards of more than a few million dollars, right? I'm guessing that if we tallied this all together, we would get something for 2021 alone, three to $5 million at minimum. This list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. So I'm actually underestimating this. If I were to have tallied this whole thing up, we might actually get upwards of five to 10 million, just given some of these numbers. I mean, we're talking about 150,000 here, right? Supporting civil society, supporting independent media, 102,000 there. I mean, we are talking about large sums of money from the National Endowment for Democracy going to opposition forces that oppose the Russian government. So that is an indication, both the sanctions 
right? The sanctions regime against Russia and the internal opposition, which is backed by the United States. That's just an easy way to see that the United States is waging a campaign of regime change against Russia. The National Endowment for Democracy has a long record. Nicaragua, Syria, Ukraine, right? During this Russia-Ukraine conflict, the National Endowment for Democracy deleted all of its sponsorship and funding uh, that was publicly available on its website. It scrubbed it from the website and deleted it because the NED knows, and it was founded in 1983 with the express purpose of doing what the CIA did uh, covertly in public, right? That it would be a shame that the CIA would be associated with these so-called democratic movements, opposition movements, right? That there would be this kind of stain now that the CIA, after the church committee, after all the things that were found out about the CIA in the 1970s, it'd be a shame if these efforts that were being undertaken in the 1980s would be solely associated with the CIA. So that's what the NED is all about. And it has its hands everywhere, not just Russia, all the propaganda you hear about China, Uyghur human rights, Hong Kong, right? They funneled millions of dollars into the opposition in Hong Kong that was waging violent uh, so-called riots in, uh, well, they were called protests, quote unquote, but they were really riots in Hong Kong, 2019, 2020. So there is just a lot of evidence that the National Endowment for Democracy is a regime change arm of the United States government of the military industrial complex, and that it is operating heavily inside of Russia and also outside of Russia to spread this propaganda. Right. It's already spent, I believe, tens of millions of dollars alone just to propagandize against Russia during this military operation in Ukraine. So uh, that's those are just a few indicators. Right. And then there's the larger policy of the military encirclement of Russia. I mean, what do we think that really is all about? Now, there is hesitation to call the military encirclement of Russia, the NATO expansion on Russia's border, a regime change operation in Washington and the Pentagon, etc. But they do acknowledge that this is about geostrategic competition, what they call great power competition, right? That is the overall strategy since 2017 under Donald Trump. And it continues under Joe Biden, uh, despite the fact that Joe Biden has tried to change uh, the wording around a little bit. It's still the overall geopolitical strategy of the Pentagon, the so-called defense strategy of the Pentagon to wage this great power competition, which is about expanding the military capabilities into Russia and China's so-called sphere of influence. Really what that means is just all the way up to Russia's borders, all the way up to China's borders to continue the dangerous buildup in Taiwan, military buildup in Taiwan to continue the NATO expansion into Ukraine, which is what this whole Russia-Ukraine conflict is all about, right? So there is a lot of evidence that suggests that any kind of militarization taking part uh, that the United States takes part in is actually all about regime change. The U.S. military only does regime change. It is not a quote-unquote defense institution. It isn't a department of defense, right? It is an offensive institution, which has a long history, right? Decades, if not centuries worth 
of history where the United States goes into countries, invades them, destroys them, plunders them, occupies them, wages proxy wars in them, and then sanctions them, etc. in order to get a government, in order to get a system, a state that complies with its diktats, that allows U.S. capital to operate freely, uh, completely without any restrictions from any government, right? And that is what the U.S. military is about. That is why there are 400 military bases on China's doorstep. That's why NATO is on Russia's doorstep. This military encirclement campaign is about regime change, and we cannot forget it. So when Joe Biden says this man cannot remain in power, he's also speaking through the military, which also believes that. Do they believe that they can get it done now? Do they believe that their actions are actually going to succeed now? That's not so clear, right? Because uh, the strategists and the Pentagon and the military industrial complex are not necessarily foolproof. They're not necessarily these kind of actors that always get their way. Uh, they know that uh, the cards are kind of stacked up against them, and they have been. And you even saw Bloomberg Magazine recently say, oh, well, the dollar actually may go, but uh, that might not be so bad. It may not be the biggest currency anymore because of this conflict. And so there's a, a strong feeling among U.S. capital, among some of these mouthpieces of the war machine, that not everything is uh, really going so well for the United States. But that doesn't change the fact that NATO expansion, military encirclement as a whole, that policy is about regime change, whether they even believe they can achieve it or not, short of a catastrophic war. So we have to take all of these factors into consideration. The proxy war, right? The covert war that is led by the National Endowment for Democracy. It's led by opposition groups that the United States backs, the sanctions which are trying to starve the Russian economy into submission, and then, of course, the military policy, which is meant to pressure Russia into doing what it did here, which has come to the aid of East Ukraine. It's meant to generate a response. It's meant to uh, intimidate Russia, to try to get Russia to back off, to shrink, right? And the same goes for China. It's to get these countries to think twice before coming to defense agreements, before coming to any cooperation agreements. It's all about intimidation, and that intimidation will hopefully lead to regime change according to the minds of these hawks that dominate Washington, D.C., Joe Biden included. So uh, that's just kind of a basic analysis of how we should think about regime change against Russia. But I wanted to show you something that's very interesting. So first published in the Moscow Times, but republished in the Rand Corporation. There's a very interesting article written about a week before Joe Biden gave this speech. It was March 18th, 2022. And I want to show you exactly how these hawks, these anti-Russia hawks think. Okay. So this is Rand dot, uh, the Rand Corporation. This is a huge think tank of the Pentagon. And I'll show you exactly how deeply connected they are to the war machine in a second. But this is William Courtney. And he wrote in the Moscow Times, which is a mouthpiece of the United States, supposedly in Russia, but actually is not located in Russia anymore. I believe it's in Amsterdam. It is a pro-Russia opposition outlet. It is very reactionary, very anti-Russia, yet it's called Moscow Times. But this was republished in Rand Corporation's blog, if regime change were to come to Moscow. 
So William Courtney is thinking about regime change in Moscow, right? This is the mindset and the mentality of these warmongers. They are thinking about this. They are strategizing about it. They are trying to frame the narrative and propagandize about it so that people will believe that this is something that's possible. So here William Courtney says that strains in Russia over the war in Ukraine and punishing economic sanctions could spark regime change in Moscow. First sentence. Although prospects for this are uncertain, as I was saying, and how the establishment feels about this, the West might be prudent to begin considering with how to deal with any new government. Past disruptions in Russia may offer some insights into for Western policy, but new ground may need to be plowed. <laughs> so he just goes over how Mikhail Gorbachev, there was a failed uh, putsch against him in 1991 by the Politburo, and then there was a Soviet collapse. And then, of course, Boris Yeltsin was the U.S.'s guy in Russia, plundered the economy. And then he talks about the security sector's influence has helped lead to wars in Chechnya, obsessive espionage, stifling of political opposition, invasions of Ukraine and Georgia. Right. So he's talking about how the security sector is still a huge problem for the United States when thinking about regime change. In the three decades since Russia's modern independence, repression at home and aggression abroad have never been greater than now. This may seem to in part reflect the dominance of today's Kremlin by security sector veterans. So these are the leaders, he is saying, who are posing a problem to regime change. Unless the security sector is reformed, efforts by any new Russian leaders to open politics and improve relations with the West could falter. The West might consider using some of its sanctions as leverage to encourage security sector reform. So literally, he is saying... William Courtney, and I'll tell you who William Courtney is in a second. He is saying that regime change could come to Russia and that this is something that's desirable. But let me just point out some problems with this potential scenario. What's the biggest problem with a new leadership emerging in Russia? It's the military. It's the security sector. And now he's saying that the United States and Europe should leverage their sanctions against the security sector which basically means that you are attempting at regime change here, that you should encourage this new leadership to come about. So if new, new Kremlin leaders, if they were to emerge, may need time to make changes, right? So he goes into all of the different reasons for that uh, during the late period of the Soviet Union, right before its fall. So uh, that is basically a lot of this article, right? Talking about the Soviet collapse, learning lessons, right? Engaging in new leaders can pay dividends. President Bill Clinton developed a measure of trust with the mercurial Yeltsin, showing patience even when he invaded Chechnya. In return, Clinton obtained his acquiescence in other areas of importance, such as NATO matters. So if you essentially cultivate leaders that will work for you, then you can get what you want, essentially saying that this current government in Russia is not what you want. And we need someone more like Yeltsin. And we need to behave more like we did uh, during the period of Yeltsin once new leaders in Russia emerge. So this is just a whole indication, right? A whole indication that this is actually a regime change project. So who is William Courtney? Because we don't need to get into, he's a reactionary. We don't need to get into the whole article. But those words alone show exactly what I mean. So William Courtney is an adjunct senior fellow at the nonpartisan nonprofit Rand Corporation. 
And so he was a U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan, Georgia, USSR, uh, and the USSR negotiations to implement the three threshold test ban treaty. But is that all who he is? Is that all who William Courtney is? Let's see. Um, so William Courtney is not just some kind of former ambassador. He actually served. Uh, so not only is he a big part of the Rand Corporation, right? He served uh, as, uh, where is it? So he, la, 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 la. So William Courtney, so he's all these things, right? He's the Rand uh, Business Leaders Forum, the director of that Rand Corporation. He's a senior fellow there. Um, he's a former member, blah, 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 blah. Here we go. This is what I want to hear. Uh, so he belongs to the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, ding, 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 ding. So another uh, CIA-backed uh, institution, a huge foreign policy organization. And he, here we go. This is why I wanted to hear. I wanted you to see. From 1972 through 1999, he was a foreign service officer in the Department of State. So this person, William Courtney, literally served the Nixon administration all the way to the end of the Clinton administration in the Department of State. And that's uh, where he also served as an ambassador. So this guy is a regime change operative, right? That is who William Courtney is. But we should look at also, not just who William Courtney is, because that's important to understanding this whole mentality among the ruling class. There are these plans to conduct regime change against Russia, but we also need to, and I'm just going to close this here, we also need to uh, look at exactly what the Rand Corporation does. So the Rand Corporation is publishing, right? It didn't originate there. It was in the Moscow Times. But it's republishing works from a former foreign service officer of the Department of State who specialized in the fall of the Soviet Union and trying to facilitate it. And the Rand Corporation shared it. And you might uh, be wondering, well, why is this? Why is the Rand Corporation so interested in regime change in Russia? Why would they publish a piece that's literally speculating about it and giving underhanded analysis and suggestions on how to get this done in Russia. Well, the Rand Corporation keeps saying that it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, but then it says its research is sponsored by U.S. government agencies, local governments, and all kinds of different sectors of the U.S. society. But if we look at the revenue of $350 million, I mean, that's a huge budget. We look at the percentage of the Rand Corporation's budget 18.5% goes uh, to, uh, or comes from the uh, Secretary of Defense and other national security agencies. So basically the Pentagon here, 18.5%. Uh, and that's only second to what you would think is a surprise, the Department of Health and Human Services. But if we take into account that the U.S. Army, 10%, the U.S. Air Force, 13% of the budget, and then the Department of Homeland Security at 14% of the budget, then you have actually uh, over, what is that, 29%, uh, then you have uh, 42%. So you have over 50% of the budget actually coming from the United States' military arm, its military wing of the government. So that's what the Rand Corporation is, is 
a regime change think tank, a military industrial complex think tank funded primarily and principally by the U.S.'s military wing of the state. And William Courtney was there to show you that actually the United States is thinking about regime change. The United States government is thinking about it. It's trying to enact it. What the what William Courtney said there is actually what the United States is doing. It is leveraging sanctions, not necessarily directly on Russia's security industry. However, the sanctions are meant to complement the opposition figures and forces which are supported by the National Endowment for Democracy. So in a way, there is this leveraging of sanctions to support these opposition movements, which are meant to bring about regime change. But he goes a step further and says, no, we need to target the military. And as I've said in past streams, targeting the military, right, gaining a foothold in the military is key and critical to any successful coup, any successful regime change operation under imperialism. That's why in 2014, when the United States successfully sponsored a coup in Ukraine, the military completely changed shape. It began to integrate all these Nazi forces, far-right forces, because that was what was serviceable to the imperialists, right? To do so, to get gain control over the military means you gain control over the society. That was the point. That same happened in Chile, right? The same happened uh, all across Latin America and Africa and Asia, right? Anytime that there were coups, there was an attempt to ensure that your guys, your people were in the military so that the military will become either de facto or directly the ruling party, right? So in Ukraine, it didn't directly become the ruling party, but it is, in, in a sense, the ruling party. The military dictates a whole lot of things in Ukraine. And if it didn't, then they wouldn't be pouring all their money into waging a civil war against the Donbass region, right? Uh, uh, that's just how these things go. If you understand anything about imperialism since 1945 alone, then you understand that the military is a key outpost in the post-World War II era and the so-called Cold War, the post-Cold War era, you know that whoever has control of the military, whether it's progressive forces, revolutionary forces, socialist forces, or reactionary imperialists, that determines a lot about the trajectory of the society. That's why Venezuela continues to stand. It has control over the military. The PSUV has popular support inside of the military. It makes up much of the military. Hugo Chavez came from the military. And that's why Venezuela has been able to withstand all these regime change operations. Russia has control over its military. William Courtney admits it so much. That's why they're able to remain independent. China, in a big way, even though its economy is what's talked about a lot, China has control over its defense forces. Uh, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, never stopped being an outgrowth of the Communist Party's just struggle for liberation, right? and eventually toward a revolution in 1949. That never stopped. That institution did not change character, did not become some kind of outpost of imperialism. When the military becomes a, either an outpost of imperialism, a tool of imperialism, then that's when your country is now a subservient uh, arm of the global diktats of this imperialist system. And that's why William Courtney suggests that the security system in Russia needs to be the target for any kind of successful regime change. So the United States is thinking about this. It is doing this. And this is important to note, okay? So we need to make sure that we understand the role of the military in society, in imperialist societies, in societies terrorized 
and it overthrown and destabilized by imperialism and of course uh, militaries that exist in countries that are independent right the cuban military the chinese military right these militaries do not have the same problems that let's say the military of ukraine has because these countries have sovereignty they have independence they have self-determination and uh, that is something that we should be defending in regards to russia and opposing any kind of whether it's a gaffe by biden or this example by William Courtney just completely and overtly talking about regime change from the trough of the military-industrial complex. All of that needs to be opposed.